I want to thank Research FDI for sponsoring today's podcast. They're a globally renowned lead generation firm that helps economic development organizations create real prospects. They've helped over 500 economic development organizations. Let me tell you exactly what they do. They facilitate one-on-one meetings for economic developers with corporate executives who will have projects soon. They can facilitate these meetings to where you travel to the corporate executive's office and meet them there, or you meet them at a trade show, or even have a conference call with them so you don't have to pay for travel. They recently launched a service called FDI 365, which provides you a lead a day of fast-growing companies that will be expanding soon. Their research has helped over $5 billion worth of projects get cited since inception. I encourage you to go to www.researchfdi.com to learn more about Research FDI. As far as I'm concerned, they are absolutely the best lead generation firm in the business for economic developers. Call them at 514-488-3168 and see how Research FDI can help you create real prospects. Hello, this is Chad Chancellor with Next Move Group. Before we begin today's podcast, if you've been enjoying our podcast series, Please go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. That'll sure help us out. We'd appreciate it a whole lot. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Next Move Group, We Are Jobs podcast. I am joined today by Peter Lingell, who is the Saffron President and CEO for USA. Uh, Peter and I met a few years back uh, when I was out recruiting the aerospace sector for Eastern Kentucky. We shared a lot of um, stories regarding uh, what his father used to do, and maybe we'll get into that today. But really, I want Peter to talk a lot about the aerospace sector for our audience, because there's a huge interest out there. Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. A great pleasure, Charles. I'm happy to be here. Okay, I uh, I think it's good if we first give a little bit of background. So if you don't mind, talk a little bit about you know yourself. I want to hear more about you and and talk about <laughs> Saffron as well. Explain to our audience who who you are and who's what Saffron does. Sure, uh, a pleasure. I'm uh, as you mentioned, President CEO of Saffron USA. That's the we're the holding company for for all the group assets in the United States. We're in um, about well now we're in 25 states. Uh, we just closed on a new asset and. Uh, we have been here uh, for almost, well, now half a century. Uh, we're foreign owned, we're uh, based in Paris, uh, but we have a large presence, the largest presence outside of France is here in the United States with our employees. As I said, we're coast to coast. Our mission is to provide uh, enabling technologies uh, throughout the aerospace and defense markets. Uh, essentially, if you, if you think of us as the, as the supplier of choice, which we are, uh, we do everything on an aerospace platform, regardless of what kind it is, uh, from nose to tail, inside and out. Would you say there's anything in particular that people would know Saffron the most for? Certainly, if they if if they fly at all commercially, um, doesn't matter whether it's on a Boeing aircraft or an Airbus aircraft. Most people fly on single aisle, 100 uh, plus seat aircraft. That's the 737 and the A320s. That's the vast majority, that's about 70% of uh, commercial air traffic around the globe. Um, for both of those platforms, we are uh, the 100% of the engines in partnership with GE, that's the CFM uh, joint venture with GE that's been around for again, half a century. Um, and 
uh, we have about, I think, 65% of the engines on uh, the Airbus A320s. In addition to that, for both of those aircraft models, uh, we do 15 miles of wiring, uh, full landing systems, wheels and brakes, uh, as well as cabins, seats, galleys, uh, et cetera. So it's a, it's a wide ranging uh, portfolio. We are the oldest aerospace propulsion company in the world. Um, and with our acquisition that we closed about three years ago, uh, the old, we, we closed on what was formerly known as Zodiac Aerospace, also Paris-based, um, and that was the oldest aerospace company in the world. So we have a long lineage uh, and tradition of excellence in aerospace platforms. And we do everything from nanopropulsion, uh, rockets, missiles, drones, for number one in helicopter engines, uh, on through business jets, fighter jets, centerline commercial jets, as we discussed, on into heavies, A400 in Europe, KC390 in Brazil, um, and here in the United States, C130s, et cetera. Um, and then on into Spacelift, we're the joint venture partner with Airbus in Europe that is equivalent to, I would say, the ULA uh, organization in the United States, which is a Boeing Lockheed consortium uh, for Spacelift. The James Webb, for instance, uh, mirror, space mirror that just went up, that uh, went up with our mirrors from Saffron Electronics and Defense Riosk uh, and was launched with our, uh, with our launch services out of Kourou, French Guiana, um, using the Ariane 5 rocket. Wow. There's, there's a lot of things that Saffron is a part of uh, in the industry, in the aerospace sector. And really, you know, a lot of people a lot of times need the definition of aerospace. And aerospace is really, it encompasses all. It's everything in the atmosphere as well as outside the atmosphere. And, yes. and Saffron's got their hands in, in a lot of that. And I'm, one, I think it's fantastic for our audience, the economic developers out there, the elected officials, to hear from someone like you, from a company like yours, uh, regarding uh, what you see in the industry, how you see the industry continuing from a growth perspective. Um, but to have your perspective from all different aspects, whether it is commercial, uh, whether it is space or defense, all those different pieces, I think that's really, really key. And I know the aerospace industry certainly had its challenges during the pandemic. What would you say is the current outlook for the aerospace industry as a whole right now? Um, I would say slowly recovering. Uh, the challenges right now are, are there's just a multitude of challenges. What we what we the, the first one was the loss of of talent. But over the course of the pandemic, folks that were either close to retirement or, or chose to take early retirement uh, are those who simply exited the, uh, the workforce uh, for, uh, for, other, for other industries. So regaining that talent is our, is our priority number one right now. Um, we lost a substantial number of, uh, of employees within the group and specifically here in the United States um, in areas where if uh, the primes, as we say, Boeing and Airbus and other ones in the business jet community, Gulfstream, Textron, uh, helicopters as well, Bell, Sikorsky, uh, Leonardo, DRS, et cetera. If they aren't building uh, and the airlines aren't flying, then several of our business units took uh, hits on both sides of their revenue streams. So that's you know, getting our people back in, uh, back in our uh, manufacturing sites is job number one right now. Um, we have, as we slowly grow our way out of this pandemic, um, the personnel shortages, the talent shortages are going to be uh, the most critical. Adding to that, unfortunately, at this point in time, inflation um, and uh, the increased, drastically increased cost of logistics of delivering our products around the globe. Um, and energy costs, of course, will, uh, will continue to drive 
uh, I would say, concerns and costs on the manufacturing side. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, everything that you're talking about are the issues we're seeing on the site selection side for our clients. As you know, we do site selection for companies um, and uh, manufacturers like you all. And, and we are seeing some uh, activity increase on the aerospace side right now, but it's still not as prevalent as, say, raw materials, some other supply chain sectors, uh, and of course, the, the EV automotive market. But labor is the number one issue of every company that we are citing right now across the United States. And you add to that, again, power issues. That's the other big one is the power cost issues. And we're seeing some states who have a good control over that, but then you have states who are subject to certain markets like the MISO market, um, which doesn't have a fair outlook right now um, for the future. And so I guess one of the big things that I would like for you to discuss, you know, as communities are looking to attract and support industries like yours uh, and your peers, you know, what do they need to be focused on considering the climate that we are all in right now? You know, what do communities need to be focused on to try to attract aerospace companies into them? Things that that excite uh, any uh, any corporation uh, with with an eye towards growth um, are going to be your, your school systems, your feeder. How do you, how do we find our talent? Um, the manufacturing jobs of even, you know, 10, 15 years ago are not the manufacturing jobs of today. It's, it's advanced uh, uh, manufacturing t- uh, techniques and technologies, virtual reality, uh, cobotics, et cetera. Th- those things are, are, are drastically changing the environment in which uh, folks involved in manufacturing uh, will find themselves in. So the first thing is that we're going to look for is can we find the, uh, and attract and keep the people that are necessary to make our uh, to make our mission. The the next thing is going to be, uh, and this is a uh, a primary objective, if you know the uh, if not job number one for the Saffron Group is decarbonization of the aviation uh, uh, community. Um, and so those those technologies that we have developed over years, more electric aircraft, hybrid propulsion solutions, and now uh, disruptive uh, engines, lighter weight equipment, more performant. More electric, uh, et cetera. That it is also involving uh, decarbonization. Also involves our site selections. That is, can we drive down our costs further and Im- improve performance, uh, streamline our supply chains, uh, while while with a with a with a primary objective of decarbonization by being close to each other. Proximity uh, wins. Uh, it does lower your costs. It reduces your risk. So if we can go into an area where uh, many of our suppliers will, will be there. Uh, it makes it far easier to do business and reduces costs across the board for everyone. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. It, you know, it's interesting uh, discussing that from a proximity standpoint. We do have quite a few clients who, because of the labor issue, they want to try to find the proximity with a balance, making a balance of being a little outside the metro areas from the simple fact of competition for labor. Would you say that that would be ideal for you know, an aerospace manufacturer as well? Depends on the, uh, the, the, the areas of technology. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, the, your workforce has a vote. Um, you know, we see consistently, you know, younger folks uh, wish to be in an urban environment for, you know, for social reasons, et cetera. Um, that brings with it the risk of uh, higher competition from, uh, you know, your competitors with regard to talent uh, acquisition and retention. So that's, it's, it's, it's a, as you know, it's a balanced scorecard approach to site selections 
And all of those things are taken into consideration. Are there, uh, what, are the tr what are the transportation op options? We include those aspects uh, in our decarbonization roadmap. That is, how far do our employees have to travel? And how far do our customers uh, and our suppliers have to travel to come see us? So mm -hmm. all of those things are taken into consideration. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine uh, not just that, but, you know, the, the um, power generation mix of the power provider, you know, how quickly are they uh, going to green energies versus uh, keeping, um, you know, fossil fuels as part of that generation mix, I would assume is important as well. Agreed. And that's, you know, the, the, as you know, um, uh, the, the power issue is not uh, addressable um, state to state. Those lines for those, for those power companies, whether, whether, whether it's providing electricity or whether it's providing other gases, et cetera, et cetera, for manufacturing purposes, uh, they cross boundaries. So the ability to, let's say, um, achieve some levels of offsets or credits, tax credits or otherwise, uh, for use of that energy based on what our uh, investment in the local economy is, uh, is sometimes challenging to achieve from an economic development standpoint. Because as I said, those, those boundary lines are uh, don't conform to state, uh, state boundaries. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want to thank LocationOne.com. Some of you know it as Lois for sponsoring today's podcast. In my opinion, Lois is the best buildings and sites database on the market. One of the reasons I think that is it gives you nationwide exposure. So I used to be the economic developer in Paducah, Kentucky, and I made a terrible mistake. I only put my buildings and sites on the Kentucky Economic Development Buildings and Sites database. Well, Paducah bordered Illinois and was within 30 or so miles of Missouri, Indiana, and Tennessee. So what sense did it make for me to not put my bills and sites on a nationwide database? Well, Lois does that for you. Looking back, I should have put my bills and sites on Lois. It's also easy to use for an economic developer. It's just like using Facebook. It walks you through how to insert your pictures and your information and so forth. And the thing I like most it works well on my iPad. If I'm in an industrial building, I want to be able to look at that thing on my iPad. Lois does that for me. Other buildings and sites databases struggle with that. So if you got 10 or 15 minutes to spare, go over to location1.com, book yourself a demo, and see if this can help your community have more success. You know, you touched on new technologies earlier. This is something that kind of stuck in my head. Because I remember um, you know, the last time I was at the Paris Air Show, uh, which I think was the last time we had a chance to see each other in person, GE was talking quite a bit uh, about um, additive manufacturing, uh, additive materials, and utilizing those in the manufacturing process. How has that changed? Has it grown? Do you see that as uh, something, those types of materials being utilized even more in the future uh, in the manufacturing process? Without question. G GE is our partner, so we have grown together in those, in those aspects. In addition, of course, as I mentioned on the space side, um, we, have, we have traditionally been a leader, uh, a world leader in uh, ceramic matrix and carbon-carbon uh, composites. We developed the first carbon-carbon uh, brake, uh, fully electric brake, et cetera. And those ceramic matrix compar uh, composites we've been using with, uh, for space applications uh, for decades. So that's, it's an area of, uh, of great interest to us and, and we're, very proud, of course, to have uh, invested in that and, and brought those technologies into the terrestrial uh, and commercial aerospace markets. On the additive side, we've already started 
uh, we started years ago actually to on the additive side for creation of uh, of parts, um, engine parts, blades, blisks, etc. The the components that that require high precision, um, but that can be adapted to with with modern technology and manufacturing processes uh, to a to a higher level of quality and performance uh, based on those techniques. So we're, we're quite excited and fully engaged on uh, advanced manufacturing uh, processes, additive manufacturing, 3D, uh, et cetera. Is there a best practice you have seen on the workforce training side that really assists that you know, future level of, of employee that you need from an additive manufacturing standpoint? Is there a, a college or a training institute that is doing a great job of preparing that future workforce for additive manufacturing? It, de it depends on which business unit. They're, they're vastly different. For instance, if you take Cephron uh, nacelles, um, you know, that's the, basically the shell that goes around the engine. It, it drives the performance. It also includes first thrust reversers, et cetera. It's a lot of composite materials. The traditional uh, method of producing those was, you know, hand laying down, uh, cross hatching, so to speak, of, uh, of uh, woven carbon fibers uh, to achieve that. Now, a lot of that is done. Um, it, increasingly, it is being done uh, with what I would call cobotics, which is the uh, the use of robotics with um, a, a person in the loop uh, to achieve the, the production requirements. So that's that, that's going hand in glove with everything else that we're doing across across the company. Uh, and it literally depends on whether we're making an engine, of course, uh, a composite uh, uh, component for the inside of the aircraft, whether it's a seat handle or whatever it may be, in-flight uh, entertainment, all of those types of things. And then vastly different, of course, is as we approach uh, things like landing systems, et cetera. Mm -hmm. As far as you know, global supply chain, global manufacturing is concerned, with some of the volatility that's occurring in Europe, do you think that not just in the aerospace sector, what do you what do you you know forecast as far as the United States continued growth in manufacturing? Do you think it'll continue at some of the clips we've seen this year? I mean, there's been a lot of announcements: semiconductors and chips and EV. Do you think that's going to continue the next three, four, or five years? I think that there's, you know, we're here in the D.C. area, so we, it's, you know, that's where our our corporate headquarters is for, uh, for Saffron in the United States, and and it's we're here for a reason. It's to maintain an awareness of and engagement with uh, the federal agencies and the members of Congress uh, on these types of issues. So it's it's critically important for us to see where the uh, where the U.S. is going in support of those types of technologies. And I think you're absolutely correct, Charles. That, that is, is that the, um, in a bipartisan fashion, the United States government is totally behind, uh, I would say, rehoming or verticalization at the national level um, of our manufacturing capabilities uh, to include rare earth minerals, mining for them, uh, et cetera. You're seeing announcements of uh, titanium mining uh, opportunities in West Virginia and in Texas. Mm -hmm. So these are areas, again, where knowing what uh, what the government is supporting at the federal level um, with legislation and, and investment dollars that's what uh, th those are things telltales i would say of uh, where the united states is going the united states is still the number one market for everything that we do aerospace defense and other you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned titanium mining. I just had a conversation about that just a week ago uh, with another state, not West Virginia or Texas. There's another state uh, I was having a conversation with up in the uh, northern Midwest. 
who had uh, a company that discovered titanium uh, mine capabilities in that state in that region. They were very excited about the possibility of it, what it means for them uh, from the standpoint of you know gathering industry around that titanium mine. But you know you're right when it comes to the raw materials and those sorts of things. There's there's certainly again, a lot of supply chain issues that are going to have to be ironed out. But I, I do agree with, with your assessment that I think that the U.S. is going to continue to see growth in the manufacturing sector. I think that our, um, you know, school systems, uh, whether that's your, you know, K through 12, uh, going into your post-secondary school systems, I think there needs to be uh, a different culture uh, when it comes to discussing these types of career pathways for children uh, who might be interested in more technical fields in, and in man advanced manufacturing, but especially in engineering. You know, my son turned 18 uh, yesterday, and, uh, you know, one of the things I've always done is encourage him. Uh, to explore, you know, technical fields, engineering, because we need so many engineers uh, in this country. Uh, we gave a, a presentation, our, our executive team did just a little over a week ago for the ACT Workforce Summit in New Orleans, their national summit on workforce issues. And we discussed those, those uh, issues as well. And it really goes back to preparing, uh, you know, this current generation and the next generation uh, for the jobs that are going to be there. Uh, that we foresee are going to be there. And it, there's a lot of technical engineering type jobs that we see. I, I strongly concur. There was just, uh, we, we were just tracking, uh, as you know, we're under a continuing resolution. Congress has failed, uh, unfortunately, uh, to pass a, a defense spending bill uh, and a general uh, federal budget. So we're under a continuing resolution until 15 December, I believe it is. Um, and uh, that unfortunately has an impact on um, everything that we're doing, but it is a sort of a stop and start, I would say, with regard to specifically on the defense side. That being said, um, there was an there is an initiative uh, in from some members of Congress uh, to address a um, a need for a sort a nonprofit sort of national uh, academy to promote. Uh, jobs and positions in the aerospace industry from everything from pilots to manufacturing uh, jobs. So that that is a recognition, I would say, you know, once again, not only of the confidence um, of the United States uh, for continued foreign direct investment, as well as just, uh, I would say, legislative efforts to create new manufacturing lines for things like chips, microchips, et cetera, as you've well noted, but also things like uh, sustainable aviation fuel. Um, those things need to happen and there, need to, there needs to be investment across the industry and uh, from a B to G, but a business to government standpoint uh, to make, that, uh, make those resources available uh, so that we can achieve common goals. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean, it's these are types of conversations we, we seem to be having all the time across the country with clients, uh, whether they're states or or our power company clients or our, our private clients or the manufacturers who are who are putting in new new facilities. I mean, these are these are common issues, regardless of the state that you're in, regardless of the region you're in of the United States. And they're things that we've got to get solved today. I mean, they're they're things we need to work on every single day uh, to get our economy prepared for what it can achieve if we're prepared for it. Agreed. One one thing I would uh, I want to shift gears a little bit here. You, your your headquarters is in D.C., but you've got a sizable facility in the northern Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio market. So my question is, how often do you get to Kentucky? 
as often as I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a good month. I, I don't know if you've been to Keeneland recently. I'm sure you've probably been there before, uh, but it's it's the uh, fall meet for Keeneland, and I'm I'm going to be heading there tomorrow myself. So. Well, great. Well, good. It's, uh, it's such a it's such a lovely place and uh, uh, historic and and well worth national attention. That is uh, that's a treasure. Yeah, I, uh, I've got a private bourbon uh, tasting this evening, um, and I always like to ask my guests these days, since I've taken over the podcast as CEO now, uh, since I'm a, a big bourbon aficionado, I always like to ask my guests if there's a particular bourbon that uh, you enjoy the most. Uh, I've always been a fan of uh, Blanton's and uh, and Eagle Eagle Rare is a particular favorite as well. Yeah, two really really good bourbons. Both of them hard to get right now. They're on allocation from Buffalo Trace, but uh, they are great bourbons. Um, you know, uh, Blanton's is the uh, same mash bill as Elmer T. Lee, which is even harder to get your hands on. But I happened to snag five bottles of that one this year, and so. Uh, <laughs> Those are the ones that I break out from time to time, but I try to make sure that I only go through one bottle a year of, of one of those. So they're so hard to get a hold of. Well, Good look, luck with um, that. I, I appreciate you you joining us on the podcast. I know uh, how busy you are. Um, and it's it's really good for our audience, the economic developers, the state elected, uh, local elected officials, the power company representatives to hear, you know, from someone like you who has this experience uh, that you're, you're leading a large aerospace firm and you can give some advice out there. Is there anything that you would, you know, as we wrap up here that you would add to our conversation? No, I think that, um, you know, I appreciate the opportunity, first and foremost, Charles. This is, this is always wonderful for us to get our message out. We're, we're extremely grateful for the support that we've gotten from, uh, from all the administrations over, over the past, you know, 15, 20 years uh, there in, for our site in Kentucky. Uh, it, is a, it is the uh, world-class facility for Saffron Landing Systems production. Uh, supports uh, not only our commercial customers with Airbus and Boeing, but also the Department of Defense. Um, and it's just, it's a fantastic uh, location. And again, the support that we've had at the community college level, all the way up to, uh, to the governor's staff uh, has been just phenomenal for us. We're, we're, we're greatly appreciated. And we look forward to uh, continued uh, good work there and expansion. Well, I, I certainly wish you the best uh, as you all continue forward as a company. I, I wish the aerospace sector the best. It's a, it's a sector that I have great interest in. Um, it just, I don't know, it sucks. I'm, I turn into a little kid every time I go to the Paris Air <laughs> Show or, uh, or Farnborough, either one, even, even the MRO show. I mean, there's just seeing the technology, especially on the VTOL side. I just, I don't know. I've dreamt of flying cars ever since I saw Back to the Future Part Two, and so one of these days I hope to have one. <laughs> like are, George Jetson are, just uh, around. <laughs> we're closer than you think. I know it's 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 fun, but it's also a little scary. Uh, but I'm excited to see what happens with it. It'll it'll it, it'll it'll come. I I, I I promise you that we're we're there. It is a rare advanced air mobility platform or or uh, uh, company that isn't being support, supported in some way, shape or form by Saffron. Yeah, well, I, I'm excited to see what the future holds with the industry, uh, with your company in particular. And uh, look, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks everyone for tuning into the podcast this week. We'll be back again next week with a new guest on the Next Move Group, We Are Jobs podcast.